calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri, and with me is the brains of the show, my co-host, Christina Teleska. Oh, I appreciate that. Because we were going to talk about fairy tales, I thought you were going to call me a princess, which would have been fine. I would never accuse you of being a princess because... I'm an Italian chick from New Jersey. And I'm a man from of a certain age. and <laughs> That's you know, true. You know, See, but yeah. I'm a woman of a certain age, so now actually princess would be like, okay, I'm okay with that. That's good. Okay. All right. <laughs> when I was 25, I would have been like, absolutely not. And now I'm like, really? You think I look like a princess? It's like when someone calls you miss instead of ma'am, I'm like, yeah. Well, Fairy Tales, which is the princess subject of uh, today's episode, are, you know, they're they're a really interesting subgenre. We grow up thinking of them as children's stories, of course. And then we find out that the original versions of the stories we grew up on are are. Yeah, they're they're pretty dark. Um, And I kind of feel like Kate Elliott, who is the featured author uh, in this episode, really excels at taking fairy tales and elevating them in ways that uh, speak to a, to a modern audience. Yeah, this is this story is epic. Like fairy fairy tale sounds very light. This story is epic and awesome. Well, set us up. Okay. On the night of a frightening storm, a mysterious traveler with strange powers rides into a town and changes a young woman's life forever. Please enjoy A Simple Act of Kindness, written by Kate Elliott and narrated by Rachel Fulgeniti. Clouds massed, black and brooding, over the hills and the great length of forest that bordered the village of Saint-Léon. They sat almost as if they were waiting, and the wind died down, and tendrils of mist and spatterings of rain were all that came of them through the day. At evening mass, at a twilight brought early by the lowering clouds, 
Deacon Josseron spoke solemnly of storms called up by unnatural means, and she warned all the villagers to bar their doors and shutters that night and to hang an iron knife or pot above the door and a sprig of rosemary above the window. No matter who knocks, invite no one in. May the Father and Mother of Life bless us all this night. So it was that not one soul saw the woman ride into town just ahead of the first fierce lashings of the storm. No one but Daniela. The back door to the inn slammed shut and set the baby to crying again, but it was only Uncle Heldrick. His cloak seemed to sparkle in the lantern light of the hearth room of the farmhouse. Lord and Lady have mercy, said Aunt Marguerite, signing the circle of unity above her breast. It looks like snow and ice on your cloak. And this midway through summer, said Uncle, as he brushed the stain of snow off his shoulders. Tisn't a natural storm. Deacon was right in that. He cast his gaze round the room and found Daniela, where she sat on a stool in one shadowed corner, trying not to be noticed while she spun a hank of wool into yarn. Girl, you take baby upstairs and send down your brother. Seven of the sheep have got out, and we must get them in before we lose the beasts to whatever walks in this storm. Night's coming on soon. With the shutters closed and only a thin line of light showing around the cracks of the door and the window, it seemed like night already. A wind howled, whistling along the roof. Smoke from the hearth curled up toward the smoke hole in the roof, and a few flakes of snow spun into view in the patch of sky, visible through the hole, only to melt at once, vanishing into the heat. I'll go, said Daniela. Upstairs lurked many things, not least her cousin Robert, who had been pestering her for months now, ever since her first bleeding came on her. And anyway, unlike her brother Matthias, she wasn't scared of storms. She liked them. They had life in them, even if Deacon Josseron warned that some storms had demons and other ungodly life swirling in their winds and rain, Better outside in a storm than trapped in here. Ah, well, said Uncle, knowing her well enough to forgive her impertinence. And she was better with the sheep, and not afraid of her own shadow, the way Matthias was. You come, then. Put on a tunic over that, it's bitter cold out. And the sheep clipped, and likely to freeze. It won't last, said Aunt. But she drew the circle again, not wishing to tempt the evil ones. Uncle merely grunted, and Daniela was quick to abandon the baby, who had stopped wailing in any case and was now busily tearing the hank of wool to shreds and stuffing bits of wool into its mouth. Matthias! Aunt called loudly, through into the common room, where the ladder that reached the loft rested against one bowed wall of the long house. Come and mind the baby! Daniela gave a last shuddering glance at the baby and hurried outside after her uncle. That's what came of simple acts of kindness, of hiring a landless man to work a season for them because he was fair-spoken and likable and down on his luck. He had stayed the summer, worked hard for the harvest and the slaughtering, 
and then gone on his way. But it had been her cousin Dauda who had died giving birth to the child he had gotten on her, and who knew where he might have been by then, perhaps getting another pretty young woman with child and going on his way. And with Dauda's death, the life had gone out of the house. That was the way of it, Deacon Josseron had said, that the Lord and Lady gather to their breasts the best loved and the sweetest to sing as angels crowned by stars. Outside, the slap of winter wind on her face shocked her. She stopped, staring at the dusting of snow and the long tendrils of fog that laced through the village longhouses, coating half-ripened apples with frost and withering the Asperia blossoms where they grew in clumps by the back door. Then Uncle shouted at her, his words lost in a gust of wind. She hurried after him. Four sheep had strayed out onto the commons, huddling together near the pond, and she herded them back toward the stables, carrying a half-grown lamb over her shoulders. A cloaked woman, Mistress Hilda, ran from the porch of the church toward her own house, hunched over an iron pot which she sheltered from the wind and the gentle fall of snow, as if it were as precious as a casket containing the bones of a saint. Daniela smelled, like someone's breath brushing her face, a distant stench, like a rotting carcass. But then the door into the stables banged open, caught by the wind, and she chivied the sheep in under shelter. Her cousin Robert, closing the door behind her, brushed against her suggestively. She shook him off. The old sheepdog lay in the corner nearest the door into the kitchen, whining. He had urinated in the corner, so frightened that he wouldn't even move off the wet straw. Gruff, she said coaxingly. Gruff, come here, old boy. But he wouldn't come to her. Scared the piss out of him, said Robert, thinking it a great joke. But even so, she could hear the shake in his voice. From the other side of the wall, she heard Aunt scolding Matthias, and that made her angry, too. It wasn't Matthias's fault that he was sickly, and that he'd been the one five years ago to find their Da's body in the slough after the spring rains, where he had been caught in the branches and dragged underwater, drowned by angry water nithies. Even Deacon Josseron had said so, that it was their revenge on Da for him building a dam and draining the south portion of the marsh for a new field. Matthias had been plagued by twitching and nerves ever since. The door slammed open, shuddering in a new gust of wind, and Uncle Heldrick kicked a sheep in before him and passed a bawling lamb to Robert. Still one missing, the black, he said. She got past me, tore off into the woods. He glanced back behind him, and Daniela saw by the taut lines of his mouth and the glint of white in his eyes that he, too, was afraid of the storm, of venturing so far away from the house, which was protected by iron and rosemary. An iron knife hung above the stable door, rosemary over the shutters that opened onto the trough. I'll go, she said, because she knew he would let her, however reluctantly, however guiltily. The holding would go to Robert, with perhaps a field left over for Matthias, but there would be nothing for her except the kettle, knife, and wedding shawl that had been her mother's. 
together with the length of green bridal cloth that Dowda had been embroidering in expectation of her own betrothal, whenever that might have taken place, though it never would now. Nothing else could she expect to receive from Heldrick and Marguerite's family, hard as times were and burdened now with three orphans, except for a necklace of amber beads that Dowda had, with her dying breath, left to her cousin. As if it were a luck charm, Daniela brushed her fingers over the necklace of beads where it lay beneath her tunic, together with the holy circle she had inherited from her mother's mother. Uncle Heldrick handed her his cloak. She wrapped it around her shoulders and went back outside. Hunched down against the tearing wind, she walked out toward the scattering of trees, not truly a wood because so many had been cut down for firewood, that marked the farthest edge of the great forest that lay to the east. The black sheep was hard to find, for by now it was full twilight, and the ewe's coat blended into the fog and the dark, lean curves of tree trunks. But Daniela listened and heard a frightened bleeding. Her feet knew the paths in this wood better, perhaps, than her eyes did, and she knew where the sheep wandered, down by the stream that wound through the wood and emptied at last into the marsh. Only one branch stung her face as she made her way through the wood and came out on the bank of the stream, where the little ewe was poised between the trees and the steep slope that led down to the trickle of water and reeds that was all that was left of the stream in the summer heat. There was no point in chasing it home. It would run off again. She lunged for it, grabbed its hind legs just as it bolted, and brought it hard to the ground, both of them together. It bleated, terrified, and voided all over, luckily missing her, but she could smell excrement and piss. The trees whispered in the wind, calling names, one name, like an old name in a dream. She got to her knees and wrestled the sheep up and over her shoulders. Unaccountably, the ewe calmed. Daniela looked up. There, on the opposite bank of the stream, were not trees, though she had with that first swift glance thought them trees, so well did they blend in with the wood beyond. They were creatures. She stood rooted to the ground with terror. Like rushes grown thick and tall, they loomed above her, whispering, dark shapes, leaning over the stream like gigantic reeds bent down in a strong wind. They were darker than the twilight, and an odor like hot iron swelled out from them. Their stirring and rustling made a noise like the thousands of leaves in a forest blown in a stiff wind, anchored by the distant ringing toll of a bell, caught below, as if their bodies, if they truly had bodies, rang on the earth with each step. They had no hands she could see, no faces, and yet she knew instinctively that they could both grasp and see. She took a single step back, slowly, and then a second, the poor ewe draped over her shoulders. A sharp wind blew a flurry of snow from the heights of the pines down on her, as if lifting themselves on that wind, the creatures leapt and crossed the stream, twelve of them at least. They brushed past her, and she smelled the liquid iron of the forge hot and stinging against her nostrils, 
and their whispering voices spoke a name into the wind, and the sound of that name tolled on the air, like bells rung to pass a dying soul up through the seven spheres to the chamber of light where it would come at last to rest. Leothano. Then they passed her, oblivious to her, to the weakly bleeding you, and were gone, on toward the village. Toward the village. Daniela, shorn abruptly of her fear, ran after them, but her feet followed the worn and familiar paths, and the creatures were gone, made invisible by the twilight, and the tall length of trees, or by their own arts, she could not know. By now the village was empty, every door shut, every shutter closed, only here and there the glint of light showing a fire or lantern within, only and alone in the huddle of buildings, the door to the church stood ajar. Perhaps, as Deacon Josseron had said, the father and mother of life need fear no demons, no creatures sent by the evil ones. Perhaps Deacon dared not shut her doors for fear of showing fear. Then Daniela saw a horse standing head down against the wall of the churchyard. Its coat was the gray of stone, and only the saddle and the saddle blanket, trimmed with silver, and the winking lure of the bridle, gave it away. No one in St. Leon owned such a horse or such fine tack. A moment later, the right side door to the church opened a bit further, and a strange humpbacked thing scuttled out, took the reins of the horse, and coaxed it up the steps in toward the church, to profane the church. But with that thought she recognized that the thing led its horse into safety, what safety the church might afford. She smelled iron, borne on the wind, and she turned slowly and saw the tall drifting shapes milling round the common's pond, as if they had lost their prey, lost the scent there by the water. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The thing vanished into the church, the horse behind it. Before Daniela realized she had made the decision, she settled the ewe, quiescent now, more firmly onto her shoulders, and ran to the church, taking the steps two at a time. She pushed past the door just as the startled thing reached to close the door. Only by the light of seven candles lit round the altar and protected by glass jars, Daniela saw it was no thing at all, but a young woman, dark-haired and dark-eyed, her skin dusky-colored, like bread baked too long in the oven, her back misshapen. The horse was a fine beast, big-boned but not enormous, with an intelligent head, a nobleman's mount. Tied on beside the saddlebags were a tasseled bowcase of leather embossed with griffins and a quiver full of arrows. A small shield painted black 
hung from the saddle. The woman wore a sword at her belt. In all things, she looked like a normal woman, except for her misshapen back and the sun-blackened color of her skin. She looked at Daniela and then at the ewe, and she removed her hand from her sword. Moving, she slammed the door shut and barred it. It will do no good, she said, clearly enough, though her words bore the accent of other foreign lands, but only gives us respite. They do not fear the house of Our Lady and Lord. Who are you? asked Daniela, who was unaccountably not afraid of this stranger, though the woman clearly knew and expected the creatures who hunted abroad this night to follow her here. What are those creatures? Are they hunting? She hesitated. Yes, said the woman calmly enough, turning to care for the horse. Rain began to pound on the roof above, so loud that Daniela could barely hear her words. They are hunting me. If there is a door out beyond the altar, you should go. Flee to your house. They do not know of you. They will not see you. You can find shelter in your own place. If your deacon is wise and has told you all to protect yourselves with iron and herbs. She shifted her grotesque shoulders and with a casual gesture unhooked and shrugged off her cloak. Daniela stared into the clear, cool, green eyes of a baby. It had a thatch of black hair and skin like burnished gold, and it stared at Daniela solemnly, like a great queen or king, marking her. It did not cry, though rain pounded loudly on the roof and a flash of lightning lit the glass windows, followed hard by the crack and roll of thunder. Daniela jumped. The thunder came so suddenly, when any natural storm would have given warning, rolling steadily toward them over the hills. The baby flinched not at all. Douda's child cried at any loud noise. The ewe bleated softly and struggled. Daniela knelt, eased it off her back, and held it tightly between her knees, gripping its neck with both hands. Strange shadows played over the altar and the wooden benches that lined the nave. Outside through the windows, Daniela saw lines of darkness swaying under the rain. A bolt of lightning lit the commons, blazing, and there was a sharp snap and the smell of iron. Ah, said the woman triumphantly. But more lines of darkness crowded round the windows, seeking entrance, as if supple trees moved in on the church from the forest. They're getting stronger, said the woman. Once this storm would have dissolved them, now it barely hinders their approach. She turned her gaze on Daniela, a dark mirror of the child's gaze. They know where I am. You must leave. She drew from her bow quiver a staff, black wood polished to a sheen. With it in her right hand, she circled the altar with measured steps, pressing her boot into the stone floor every fourth step, as if she was trying to ingrain some substance into the stone. She stopped, kneeling at the point of north, and struck the staff against the stone four times, speaking words Daniela did not understand. 
Abruptly, the rain stopped pounding overhead, and the thunder, instead of rumbling away west, simply ceased. Did you bring the storm? whispered Daniela. Are you a tempestari? Although the woman knelt too far away to have heard, she answered anyway, rising to her feet and shrugging the sling that held the baby down from her back and gently setting the child, still wrapped tight, in the center of the altar between the seven candles that marked the perimeter, as if this sanctity would protect it. The child watched with preternatural calm, although it was far too young to understand. No, I am not. I am much worse. I am a mathematiki, a magi, as you would call it, who draws power down from the stars and the moon and the sun. Then how is it you can stand on consecrated ground? Beware, said the woman, and raised the ebony staff above her head. Fear stabbed through Daniela, and she shied away from that expansive gesture. She lost hold of the yew just as the door to the outside burst asunder. The yew bolted for the commons. Catch! cried the woman, throwing the staff up toward the roof. The wood winked, sparked, and as darkness shrouded the church and the yew vanished into a pit of blackness, the staff blazed with light, sucking darkness into it. With a crack as loud as thunder, it splintered into shards. The air cleared, reeking of the tang of hot iron, as the remains of the staff fell to the floor in a hail. Then it was silent. The seven candles at the altar burned peaceably, and the baby watched without a sound. By the shattered door, the ewe lay still. Daniela crept over to it. She gasped, gagging, and clapped a hand over her own mouth. The ewe was dead. It already stank like a carcass five days old. Outside it was still, but trees swayed in the wind. Or were there more of these creatures? Daniela backed away from the door. What are they? she asked, barely able to form the words. They are gull, the woman said, her voice hoarse on the G, as if it had formed an unholy conjoining with a cough, rough and guttural, a suggestion of the creatures themselves. You said you are not Tempestari. Did they bring the storm then? I brought the storm. Water can dispel them sometimes, but they are strong in numbers this day and strong in this world. Wind and rain can hide a trail, but they know my scent too well by now. Daniela's gaze caught on the woman's cloak, where it had been left to lie on the floor. Odd traceries decorated the lining, as if signs or spells had been sewn into it. She shivered, but it was not only the strangeness of the cloak and the woman and the shards of the black staff that littered the floor. Now it had gone winter cold again, though the storm had vanished. She braced herself against a hard swell of chill air, feeling it like a wave coming in through the broken door. The horse neighed suddenly and kicked out, overturning one of the benches. Blessing, cried the woman, bolting toward the altar, toward the child. 
A blast of wind gusted into the church, and that fast, like the snap of fingers, the candles around the altar went out. It was night, black and empty. Daniela dared not move for fear she would step into an abyss, for everywhere around her it was as black as the chasm of hell. Cold darkness poured past her like water. But the baby cried once, sharply. The woman cursed. As black as the air now was, the stripes of the demon, the gala, were blacker still, and by their shadows Daniela saw them struggling with the woman, writhing as if to imprison her, as if to swallow her. From the altar rose a faint gleam, like a light shielded under cloth. It was the child. Daniela could not leave it to die. She clamped the cloak under one arm and dashed up the aisle. Her feet knew the way better than her eyes, from the many times she had come forward to taste of wine and bread at mass. She flung the cloak toward the woman, praying, hoping that it might distract the gala, and grabbed the child off the altar, clutching it against her chest, tucking Uncle Heldrick's cloak over it, knowing common wool could not truly shield it. A sizzling, snapping sound, like the rain of pebbles, like water boiling onto stone, scorched the air around her. She smelled fire and the acrid scent of the blacksmith's forge. An arc of flame shot up toward the roof and the gala scattered with the tolling of bells. They scattered like grass blown on the wings of a firestorm. Heat warmed Daniela's face, then the slap of cold. Dark shapes curled around her, a ring of cold, twisting tighter, ever tighter. She felt their circle shrink. She felt their hidden eyes upon her, felt their hands grasp, reaching, touching her and insinuating their bodiless hands into her, inside her. She began to cry, soundlessly, from sheer terror. The baby did not, could not, stir but its green eyes shone like emeralds. Blessing, their iron voices said, child born of fire and blood. And then, like death calling her name, they spoke again. Daniela, daughter of Lutgarda and Gerard. And against the hard scent of iron enveloping her, she smelled as if it was coming from the baby, like a warding spell, the pungent, sweet scent of roses. Fire scorched the church, the candles on the altar burst into flame, and the darkness retreated from it. But it drew back only halfway down the aisle. There, the entwined gala crouched, waiting, stirring, poised to engulf their prey. Benches crashed and toppled, and Daniela caught a glimpse through the shadow of the gala of the gray horse plunging out through the doors. It vanished into the night, only it was not entirely night. The first line of gray heralding dawn limbed the height of the trees. It had begun to rain again outside, but softly. How could it be near dawn? How could time pass so swiftly? Yet the hint of light to come soothed Daniela's terror. Surely the sun would dispel these creatures. But the gala waited, murmuring, 
creeping closer and ever closer by slow degrees, their approach like the echo of drowned bells. The woman rose from her knees with a soft moan. She was hurt. Her dark skin was scored with thin white scars, as if she had been burned by fingers of ice. You have my blessing, she said, and she limped over and took the baby from Daniela's arms. I have no means by which to thank you for this kindness. You owed me nothing. We all owe kindness, said Daniela. It is what the Lord and Lady grant us, to ease our pain. To her surprise, the woman wiped tears from her scarred cheeks. I can give you nothing that will repay you in full for what you have done. Guard my horse for me, in case I ever return and find you again. His name is Resuelto. Daniela was too stunned to reply. The gala shifted, easing nearer, but slowly, as if they feared another blast of fire. Their voices whispered, naming, marking. The woman ducked her head and with an efficient movement slipped a chain off from around her neck. She held it out and the gala shrank back, the darkness retreating, bending backward, away. On the gold chain hung a medallion of beaten bronze embossed with three symbols which Daniela could not read. Take this, put it on. This alone will protect you. Protect me? Daniela stammered. They have noticed you and will always mark you. You will never be entirely safe from them without this, nor will anyone nearby you. Forgive me for bringing this trouble on you. That is all of the gift I can give in exchange for your kindness. Daniela thought of the darkness writhing around the woman, thought of these creatures taking her and the baby, enclosing them, engulfing them, ripping life from them as they had from the black ewe, leaving a five days dead carcass in their wake. She did not reach out for the amulet. Won't you need it? she asked, thinking that no one needed her. At least this woman had a child she cared for. That was probably her own. And if she died, the child, too, would be another orphan, living on the sufferance, however kindly meant, of others. I must go elsewhere where they can't follow. She hugged her child closer to her with her free arm, and bent her head to kiss its cheek, by this small gesture revealing that she loved it, wept for it, fed it, and sheltered it, as Dowda would have loved and sheltered her baby, though it was fatherless, had she lived. Take it, said the woman, and Daniela saw that she was adamant, that she would not stir until Daniela accepted the gift, though the gala whispered, muttering like bells, like words in dreams, like the language of the forest at night and all the wild places that are haunted, that care not for human kindness or human love and show no favor because, like the wood and the wild places, they cannot know a good man from an evil one. Daniela reached out and took the amulet. The gala sighed and massed, drawing together into a great dark column a vast funnel of night. Outside, 
The first pink rim of dawn rose along the tree line. The village was utterly quiet. No person stirred, not even a lamb bleated, nor dog barked. The rain had stopped, although the sky was still dark with clouds. Calmly, the woman gathered the child closer against her and walked past the massing gala and out the shattered door and down the steps to the lane that fronted the church. In a daze, Daniela watched her, watched the dark shape of the gala shift and turn and glide along the stone floor of the church, following the woman, bells ringing hollowly as they moved. Above, the whitewashed ceiling of the church was scorched, blackened by flame. The candles round the altar burned steadily, without flickering. Daniela's feet seemed to move of their own accord toward the door. They echoed in the empty church, leaving the trailing sound of a second set of footsteps behind her. She emerged from the door, picked her way over the splintered wood, and halted on the steps. The woman, cloak and bow and quiver slung over her back, still clutching her baby in one arm, knelt before a puddle of water in the lane. She passed a hand over it, palm down, and seemed to be speaking as she peered deeply into it. Behind her, the gala closed on her, spreading their cloak of darkness out to engulf her. And she was now unprotected. Daniela opened her mouth to cry out, to warn her, but no sound came out. No sound but the scuffing of feet behind her. She turned her head to look behind her, only to see Deacon Josseron blinking confusedly, pick her way across the entrance and halt, staring, at the black cloud that had expanded to cover most of the commons. They'll kill her, cried Daniela, and snapped her head back, starting down the steps, only to stop short, staring. Dense fog smothered most of the commons, except for a patch of clear ground around a smooth puddle. Daniela ran down the steps. The fog parted before her, and she crouched in the middle of the lane, beside the puddle, looking for remains. Surely the gala could not have utterly consumed both woman and child. Though it rained softly, the puddle remained a still smooth surface, oddly unmarked by the raindrops Daniela felt on her head and arms and back, and could see in other smaller puddles that filled the potholes in the lane. She stared into the water. There, in the clear, pale blue water, she saw a reflection of the woman and the baby looking out at her, looking, peering, as if to see her, as if to say goodbye. Then the image faded and the water turned muddy. Rain stirred its brown surface, spreading tiny ripples. Slowly, the fog dissipated. The sun rose. Its edge cleared the trees and threw morning shadows long across the commons, striping the church. What has happened here this night? Deacon Josseron asked, coming down the steps. Daniela rose. She ached everywhere, as if she had worked for hours. 
though it seemed no time at all had passed since she first saw the woman flee into the sanctuary of the church. I followed the black ewe into the woods, said Daniela, and told her story. When she had finished, Deacon Josseron signed the Circle of Unity and asked to look at the medallion. She studied it for a long time. Daniela grew increasingly nervous. The church denounced magic and sorcery, all but those miracles granted to saints by the Lord and Lady, and what healing magic that holy men and women of the church might use to succor the ill and dying. But magic roamed abroad, nevertheless, everyone knew that, and some sought to tame it or wield it, and some sought to confine or destroy it, while the church demanded penance from those who touched it or who begged help from the Magi and Areoli and Tempestari who practiced the forbidden arts despite the ban. But Deacon Josseron had lived many years in Saint-Léon and had never once in Daniela's memory spoken out against Mistress Hilda's potions for lovelorn lads or old Adu's reading of thunder and the flight of birds and the movement of the heavens in order to predict the weather for the farmers, especially since old Adu was always right. Once she had mildly rebuked the congregation for giving credence to a traveling mathematiki who offered, for a price, to read a man or woman's fate from the courses of the sun and moon and stars, but who Deacon said was a charlatan. Now she simply handed the amulet back to Daniela. These are strange and dark times, she said. You must wear this. What will you do with the horse? How feed it? Such a horse must have grain, and there are those, alas, who will envy you the having of it and its fine bridle and saddle. Some gifts are as much of a curse as a blessing. The gray gelding grazed out on the commons. Like an orphaned child, it suddenly appeared to Daniela as more burden than bounty. But she rose determinedly and walked over to the horse. He allowed her to approach, but with stiff arrogance, like a noble lord forced to allow the approach of a simple farmer. One of the saddlebags was filled with more coin, coppers, and silver than Daniela had ever seen in her life. Some stamped with King Henry's seal, others with that of his father and father's father, the two Arnulfs. The other bag contained a book. Deacon Josseron walked over carefully, favoring the leg that had suffered from an infection this last winter, and when Daniela handed her the book and she opened the plain leather cover and read what was inside, she blanched. Daniela had never seen Deacon at such a loss before. These are terrible things, she whispered. You must let no one see this. You must keep it then, Deacon. But Deacon Josseron closed the book, and with hands trembling not with age, as they well might have, but with something else, fear or passion or some old memory, she thrust it firmly back into the saddlebag. Once, she said, shutting her eyes against memory, I dedicated my life to the convent. Before I was cast out from the life of contemplation and sent into the world to atone for my misdeeds, I was curious, 
and the old books speaking of the forbidden arts tempted me. They tempt me still, though thirty years have passed since those days. Hide it. Let no one know you have it. If a trustworthy friar passes through here, we can send it on to the convent of Saint Valeria, or to Dordus Abbey. But who was she then, deacon? A mathematici, indeed, child, whom we would call one of the magi. She spoke truth to you. Great powers lie hidden in the earth and in the heavens, and not all believe that the church ought to forbid their study. I have seen with my own eyes. But she trailed off, and Daniela thought that perhaps age lay heavily on the old woman, as much from what she had seen as from the passing of years. Now you have seen, and those who see are marked forever. Go then, child. Go back to your house. I will speak to the congregation of the storm and what it brought. But I pray that the father and mother of life will forgive me for not telling them all that occurred in the night. Daniela led Risuelto home and installed him in the stables next to the sheep, whom he deigned to ignore. He allowed her to unsaddle him and rub him down, but when Uncle Heldrick and Aunt Marguerite ventured out, exclaiming over the dark storm that had swallowed the village for the night, he snorted dangerously and would not let them near him. Matthias was afraid to come into the stables at all, with the big horse there, and Robert, for once, was so in awe of Daniela, or so afraid of what she might have seen and what might have seen her, that he left her alone, not brushing against her hips at every chance, not groping at her budding breasts or whispering suggestions in her ear when no one was nearby to hear. So the day passed, and the next day, and the one after that, except that strange accidents occurred in the village. Mistress Hilda's prize goat escaped and was found drowned in the pond. Uncle Heldrick and Master Bertrand, their neighbor, were hit by a falling tree in the wood, crushing Bertrand's foot and breaking Uncle's left arm. Milk curdled and the hens stopped laying eggs. Churns were overturned, looms unraveled, and the candles at the altar blown out every night. Every person in Saint-Léon was struck by misfortune, great or small, everyone except Daniela. Olda Du said the movements of the birds and the lizards warned of worse misfortune to come. Fog wrapped itself round the village at night and increasingly during the day, and out of that fog rose the whisper of bells and soft, guttural voices naming a name. Daniela. They have noticed you and will always mark you. You will never be entirely safe from them without this, nor will anyone nearby you. Forgive me for bringing this trouble on you. That is all of the gift I can give in exchange for your kindness. At dawn on the fourth day since the storm, Daniela woke abruptly and realized that Dauda's child, called Blanche for her pale hair, was gone from the bed. She dressed quickly and climbed down from the loft. No one was awake yet, 
Uncle and Aunt snored softly from their bed by the kitchen fire, and even Gruff lay curled up asleep on the bricks that lined the hearth. She ran outside, and there, there on the commons a dense blot of fog, as dark as the smoke from a blacksmith's forge, swirled round a crying, stumbling child, driving it toward the pond. Daniela cried out loud, and little Blanche, hearing her, bawled even louder and tried desperately to turn, to toddle back toward her aunt. But she could not. The gala forced her closer and ever closer toward the water. Daniela ran. The fog parted before her, hissing, angry, and she grabbed Blanche just as the little girl teetered on the edge of the pond, her dirty dress wet along the hem. Be gone, Daniela shouted, forgetting to be frightened because she was so furious. She pulled the amulet out from under her tunic and held it forward, driving them away. Be gone? What right do you have to torment the innocent? But all they said in answer was to whisper her name. Daniela. The sun rose and the fog faded to patches, retreating to the wood, where it curled like snakes around the trunks of trees, waiting, as it would continue to wait forever, not knowing human time or human cares. Daniela stood silently by the pond, soothing the weeping child, until Deacon Josserin came out of the church to discover what the shouting had been. I must leave, Daniela said, the knowledge hanging on her like a weight. She fought against tears, because she was afraid that if she wept now, she would not have the courage to do what had to be done. They will never leave the village, not until I am gone. Deacon Josseron nodded, accepting what was necessary. What she could see was true. Aunt Marguerite wept when they held a council that morning in the church, uncle and aunt and the eldest in the village, those that had their wits about them still. Uncle Heldrick offered Daniela his cloak, but he did not beg her to stay. He held little Blanche on his lap. She was smiling now, playing with his beard, and he even laughed a bit. He was fond of Dauda's child, what was left to him of his only daughter, favored child, the best loved and the sweetest. You take my cloak, he said gruffly to her. You have nothing to replace it with, said Daniela. Take my mother's wedding shawl in exchange. Nay, child, he replied, looking shamed by her generosity. We have nothing else to give you. It is all you have left of her. She gave Matthias four silver coins, which was all she could spare, knowing that she would need the rest for the care and feeding of the gelding, and Matthias sobbed as disconsolately as he had when their da had been buried, and their mother, dead, bearing a child. He begged to come with her. Perhaps he even meant it. But with the coin, he could buy himself a start on his own farm and get a wife, and like their da, he had the gift of understanding the land and the seasons, for all that he was scared of the wild lands surrounding the fields. You are meant to stay here, she said to him. To Blanche, she left Dauda's bridal cloth, 
and to Robert, a single kiss of forgiveness. You must go to the convent of Saint Valeria, said Deacon Josseron. You must walk seven days east and ten days north, and there at the town known as Otun, ask for further direction. At the convent you will find, if not protection, at least advice, for the abbesses there are known for their wisdom and for their understanding of the forbidden arts. You must not linger too long in one place as you travel, or these creatures, these gala, may bring mischief onto the people among whom you stay. And you will be named as a witch or a malefici and driven out, or worse. Take this letter and give to the abbess at the convent. They will take you in. Daniela looked long and searchingly at the marks on the parchment, but they meant nothing to her, just as the book left behind in the saddlebags meant nothing. She will try to find me, said Daniela suddenly. For the book, if nothing else. If she has the power, if she yet lives, she will find you, said Deacon. But whether that would bode good or ill for you, I cannot say, child. Daniela did not reply, but she felt in her heart that she left Saint-Léon, the only place she had ever known, not just to spare her family, to spare the others, but to seek after that meeting, as if it was ordained, whether she willed it or no. Aunt Marguerite brought her bread and cheese, which she put in one of the saddlebags, and Uncle Heldrick brought her mother's knife, which he had sharpened to a good edge. She tucked it in her belt, kissed Matthias one final time, and took the reins of Resuelto from Robert. "'Go with the Lord and Lady,' said Deacon Josseron, signing a benediction over her. "'Go safely,' said Aunt Marguerite. Little Blanche, caught up in her granddaw's arms, began to cry, reaching her arms out for Daniela. But Daniela turned quickly away from them and started down the lane, leading Resuelto, since she did not know how to ride. She did not want them to see the tears in her eyes. She did not want them to fear for her or grieve for her. It was bad enough that they must grieve for Dauda, for Da, for her mother. Let them believe that she went with a light heart, that it was a fate she went to meet willingly. It was the only kindness she could show them as she left them behind probably forever. The gelding walked with dignity beside her, ears forward, eager to explore the road ahead. She kept her eyes on the dirt lane and the wood, and, as she passed under cover of the trees, she looked back once to see her village, free of any trailing mist or tendrils of fog, lying in the bright warmth of the noonday sun. The sky was clear above, as blue as she had ever seen it. At last, with a wrench, she turned to face the road ahead once more, and she walked resolutely on toward unknown lands. One of the things I love most about the story, like so many of Kate Elliott's stories, is how it reads like a feminist fairy tale with a fully empowered female protagonist who is simply the norm and not the exception. It really is a hallmark of Eliot's writing. And what I love about what Kate Elliott does is she creates this, this mysterious writer, this, this traveler, 
but very Mm three-dimensional. I mean, she's doing she's fighting monsters and she's a mother. Yeah. So, so she's trying to take care of the child. I mean, isn't that every woman? Right. Exactly. <laughs> this is the norm. Right. I got the sword in you one know, hand and I got the baby in the it other. It doesn't. It you don't blink. Right. You ju- you're just you just roll with it because you know. Of course, she can do both. Always multitasking. Yeah. And Elliot's writing is so richly detailed. She uses all five senses to paint her narrative in sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and textures. And it just really made me feel immersed in the whole thing. Yeah, you have you have a narrator, and I felt that was so. You have this one voice performing for you, and I felt like I heard everybody. Like that's how good her writing yeah. is. Well, that about does it, Christina. I'm so grateful that we were able to share these stories. Thanks, Marco. Anytime. And if you think we're doing a good job, we'd love it if you left us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. And join me next time when I'll have a new co-host and a new story to keep you up at night. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, episode 64, features A Simple Act of Kindness by Kate Elliott. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Christina Telesca. Performed by Rachel Fulginetti. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.